Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all well, and this week I have a creepy case for you. It's one of those cases that as you research and find out what the fuck went on, you almost need a shower. It's that greasy. And it's, I, I guess it's a mix between a Rocky Rambo and a Grant Amato for greasiness. You'll get what I mean as we go through it. Now, references tonight are from the Macon Telegraph, the Baltimore Sun, BarristersHall.com, MyDeathSpace.com, WGXA News, and a stack of police statements, which, as I read them out, I'll just edit it as I usually do for flow. Okay, so we go to Macon, Georgia, probably an hour and a half's drive southeast of Atlanta. It's here that 27-year-old Lauren Giddings had been studying law. Now, I'll read this. Actually, it's from her obituary. Lauren Teresa Giddings was born April the 18th, 1984, in Tacoma Park, Maryland, to William and Karen Giddings. She grew up and resided in Laurel until she moved to Georgia. She was a member of St. Mary of the Mills Catholic Church and attended St. Mary's School from kindergarten to eighth grade. She graduated from Atholton High School in Columbia in 2002, where she played field hockey and softball. In 2002, she moved to Georgia and attended Agnes Scott College until 2006, when she graduated with a major in political science, minored in religious studies and played softball. After graduation, she returned home and worked for the National Center for Public Policy in Washington, D.C., before pursuing a career in law. In 2008, Lawrence started at Mercer University Walter F. George School of Law, where she was the president of the Federalist Society. She graduated on May the 14th, 2011 with a Juris Doctorate degree. Now, Lauren was six feet tall. She loved to run and she loved her Pekingese dog called Butterscotch, named for its butterscotch colour. She was a person of vitality and she lived life to the fullest. Now, Lauren was living at Barristers Hall at 1058 Georgia Avenue, Macon. Now, she was in Unit 2, which was situated on the top floor of a two-floor complex. Now, Barristers Hall comprises of 16 units in two blocks. Now, there's four units on each ground floor and four units on the top floor, each with its own balcony. It's used as student accommodation. Now, each unit is set up as a one-bedroom unit with the second bedroom converted into a study. It has its own kitchen, a lounge room and bathroom. And they're nice, large-sized units, especially for someone who lives in a studio like me. Now, it's situated right across the road from Mercer University Walter F. George School of Law. Now, I did see that it costs around $750 US a month to stay there, which I suppose is probably not the cheapest option in town, but you don't have to share with anyone either, which is probably worth the extra money, especially when you're studying something like law. Anyway, Lauren had graduated, as I said, on the 14th of May and was studying for the Georgia bar exam. She had attended her sister's wedding 
And on the way back from that, she dropped in at her boyfriend's place, David S. Vandiver, an athletic 48-year-old. Now, she stayed at David's house the night of Tuesday the 21st of June. The next morning when he awoke and he left for work, little did he know this would be the last time he would ever see Lauren alive. Now, some might say this is a bit of an age gap, but Lauren and David were in love and had planned to move in together. Well, Lauren had planned to move into his place once she moved out of the Barristers Hall apartment. Now, she did take David to her sister's wedding, so the whole family got to meet him, or they probably already met him before, and they were all fine with him. They thought it was fantastic. Now, the relationship had been going on for around four years at this stage, and now that Lauren had graduated, they were probably going to get married. Anyway, after Lauren got back to Macon, she did let her hair down with a drinking session with her friends before she locked herself down and crammed for this Georgia bar exam. On the day of the 29th of June, Lauren's friends and family started to notice that she hadn't replied to messages for a couple of days. She was a bit quiet. In fact, even her landlady hadn't heard from Lauren to discuss moving out of the apartment, which was only in a few days' time. Her friends knew she was going to be holed up and studying hard for the Georgia bar exam, but still, there was no activity on her social media accounts, no replies, nothing. She seemed to be overly quiet. Her phone was going to voicemail, and this is where people started to get really concerned. Caitlin Wheeler, Lauren's sister, reached out to a friend, Ashley Morehouse, who lived in Macon, to see if she could drop by Lauren's place to check up on her. Ashley got to the Barristers Hall complex around 6.30 to 7pm and saw that Lauren's Mitsubishi Galant was still parked out the front. She went up the stairs and knocked on the door, but there was no reply. Now, Ashley called Caitlin back to update her and offered to swing by later. Now, Caitlin called a few of Lauren's friends who also told her that they hadn't heard from Lauren for a few days, but everyone just put this down to her studying hard and locking herself away. Now, Caitlin knew Lauren's password for her Facebook and Gmail, and when she logged in, she saw that there was no activity since the previous Saturday night of 25th of June. Now, remember, this is now the night of the 29th. This really got Caitlin worried. Now, Caitlin called all the hospitals and police departments, as you do, and still there was no sign of Lauren. She then called Laurie Suspect, who told her that she'd already called the police and they were on their way to Lauren's apartment. Now, this was around 11pm and the cops turned up at around 11.20pm to find no visible signs of a break-in. The cops told Laurie that she probably went away and she couldn't file a missing persons report until the morning. I mean, what a couple of arsehole coppers were there. Laurie, frustrated at the response she got and knowing Lauren wouldn't just walk away and not contact anyone for days, called Caitlin to give her an update. Caitlin then told Ashley Morehouse to enter the unit via a spare key that was in a candle jar on the front porch. Ashley had a couple of friends with her and they entered Lauren's unit. They started to freak out a bit when they found Lauren's keys, purse, all her law books and phone inside and the phone's battery was dead. They were able to turn it on and they saw it hadn't been used since the Saturday before on the 25th. Then the next door neighbour, Stephen McDaniel, he walked in asking what's going on. Now, he'd lived next to Lauren for several years, I think three years, 
and they were both studying law at the same time. They'd also just both graduated in May. But we're going to get back to Stephen McDaniel a little bit later. Now, Ashley called back Caitlin and told her that everything someone would take with them if they went away was still in the apartment. Now, Caitlin called her mother's brother-in-law, who was a cop, and he suggested to get out of the house, lock it, and call 911. At approximately 12.52am on June the 30th, 2011, while at Barristers Hall apartment complex, Ashley Morehouse reported to Macon police officer David Descoto that her friend, Lauren Giddings, was missing. Sergeant Doug Copeland arrived at around 1am. Now, he conducted a brief investigation along with DeScoto, then contacted Detective Sean Bridger, who advised Copeland and DeSoto to write a report, send it to the Detective Bureau, and they would follow it up in the morning. And then they said just to leave the scene. Later that morning at 8.40am, Assistant District Attorney Gary Wood met Detective David Patterson on Patterson's way into his office to report to him that Lauren Giddings was missing. Patterson requested assistance from the Macon Crime Lab and went to Barrister Hall, arriving at around 9am to begin his investigation. Police encountered Stephen McDaniel soon after they arrived at the apartment complex when a Sergeant Chapman knocked on McDaniel's door, and that's number four, and began speaking to him. Now, McDaniel lived on the top floor facing the front of the road next door to Lauren's apartment. Now, Detective David Patterson placed McDaniel into his police car for a few minutes where he interviewed him for the first time. So, who is this Stephen McDaniel? Well, He was born on the 9th of September 1985 in Lilburn, Georgia. He was intelligent and he earned an academic scholarship to Mercer Law School as an undergraduate. He tended to keep to himself and usually the window blinds to his apartment would be closed. He was six foot tall and had this huge thick mane of fizzy brown hair which went past his shoulders and he had facial hair and it wasn't like a a long beard or anything. It looked like he was just scruffily unshaven for a few weeks sort of thing. Now, he would probably pass for, say, a bass player in a glam rock band or something. But McDaniel had a fascination for all things zombie and he made people uncomfortable when he was around. He was a bit of a misfit, actually. Now, he was the opposite of Lauren, who was sociable, had many friends, all that sort of thing. McDaniel really didn't have any friends, and those that he did get close to were still a bit uneasy in his presence. Now, one friend, Thad Money, told of how McDaniel would tell him how he could get into his room by picking the lock. And then, right in front of him, he did just pick his lock. Now, Thad also told of how McDaniel would start talking about power and how he wanted power over people and how he was smarter than anyone around him. He would also grin and he had this evil look in his eye and he had this rant about he would plan the perfect murder. He was a misfit that sometimes hissed at people and in 2004 he was voted the most likely to become famous during his senior year at Parkview High in Lilburn. The funny thing is he had a very loving and supportive family and I guess he would become the most famous person in his school year. So, police have just met McDaniel and stuck him in one of the patrol cars for an initial interview. 
About 40 minutes later, that's around 9.40am, Patterson and other officers discovered a female torso in a trash can, or what we'd call in Australia a big wheelie bin, on the east side of the front apartment block after noticing a foul odour. After this discovery, Patterson asked two of Lauren's friends, Ashley Morehouse and Garen Muller, to meet him at the detective bureau on First Street in Macon so that he could interview them. He told McDaniel also to ride there with Sergeant Roney, which McDaniel did. Now at this stage, McDaniel has no idea police have found a torso in the wheelie bin at the side of the apartment complex and they don't tell him about it either. So for the next few hours, McDaniel and some of Lauren's friends are being interviewed and providing statements. Now, finally, Lieutenant Fletcher, he interrupted Patterson's interview of Garen Muller to tell him that McDaniel was ready to be taken home. Now, instead of doing that, which McDaniel wanted to go home, instead of doing that, Patterson returned to the interview room where he told McDaniel to remain and he resumed his interview of him. Now, near the end of this third interview of McDaniel by Patterson that day, Patterson ordered McDaniel to stand up and then he asked him to lift his shirt so that Patterson could look for marks on his body. Now, McDaniel did this and Patterson noticed that he had two red scratches on the right side of his abdomen. Now, this appeared to Patterson to be fingernail marks. Patterson then asked McDaniel about them and he said, I don't know how I got them and he didn't remember when he got them, which is a bit strange, don't you think? At this point, around 1.40pm, Patterson and District Attorney Investigator Jim McDonald took McDaniel back to his apartment. Now, Patterson and McDonald then walked through McDaniel's apartment, accompanied by him, to see if they could see anything to do with Lauren or even to find Lauren herself. Now, after this search, McDaniel was allowed to leave his apartment, and this is where things start to get a little bit weird. News crews were already on the scene because they heard, as they do, about Lauren being missing and that police were on site at Barristers Hall. A few minutes later, McDaniel is being interviewed by the media and they tell him that police have found a torso in a trash can beside the apartments. Yep, the media have seen McDaniel coming out of the apartment and they want to ask him a few questions. Now, I really think at this stage, the producer on site or the reporter, as part of their job, they know to try to interview anyone who lives in the complex or anyone who might be lurking around the scene. Because you never know if the person you interview is going to end up being the killer. And you've got the biggest scoop on video. Now, McDaniel, who looks like a giant troll doll with his big mane of frizzy hair, probably looked like a prime suspect to them. And McDaniel, he seemed to want to be interviewed. He wanted to interject himself into all the drama going on. Now, this interview was actually done in three parts over about a 20-minute period. Now, I will stick them all together here in audio form. It's about 11 minutes in all. So the three parts of this was put together. There's a couple of breaks in between, but yeah, it's 11 minutes in all. Let's cut back to cut to the interview. And if you go to my YouTube channel, True Crime Island, you'll be able to actually watch the interview as well. Now, if you do want to skip through this, to get back to where I come back in, that will be at about the 27-minute mark of the podcast. Okay.
and no one's heard from her since. Did you see her hang out with anyone at the time and came back? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, you always hear noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer. Yeah, she and I were we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you? What did you see? Her? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much people person. Do you know anybody that any enemies she might have had? Somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because I mean, we went at, we went over. One of her friends had a key. We went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss. But I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we we just don't know where she is. What about um in the like the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of. I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body. Um, had you heard? Had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? Right. I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. You've been studying for the bar? Uh, I no one had seen her since Saturday because I we all just there's not a whole lot of interaction unless we're doing classes. Right. And she was doing the uh, online version of it. You all so, studied together though? I uh, we were in this there's two different people that there's two companies that provide it. Captain provides it and Barbie provides it. I signed up with Barbara and I've been doing the lectures that they have in the mornings. She was doing the Kaplan online, so I hardly ever saw her. I, mean, I would see her like go out running, but I mean, what time would she go out running? I mean, I don't even know when. Was it I, at night or morning? I, I saw her like midday a, a couple weeks ago. I mean, that was the last time I saw her was coming back from the bar prep on the main campus because we got moved over there for a week or two. But she normally would run. That was yeah, routine I mean, she, she ran all the time. I mean, she, she had a group that she would go running with. I mean, I, I, I don't know anyone that would want to hurt her. She was as nice person as there is. Was she moving soon? Did you know anything about her? Yeah, yeah. She she was going to be moving out uh, today. She was supposed to move out today because someone else was going to be moving into her apartment in New Boston. Do you know if she was like, where is she from? Is she uh, from Maryland? Maryland yeah, she's from up in Maryland. Can I just put this on you so we can hear you? Is that alright? Okay. I'm so sorry. You, know, you can just hold on to that. Thank you. Yeah, she's from Maryland. Yeah, I mean, she she was from up in Maryland. I mean, all her family was there, as far as I know. I mean, she. 
What's going on in your mind right now? Like, what are you thinking? Why would anyone do this? Didn't hear anything? No. I. Yeah, I just heard something. Maybe I could have held it. Okay, don't worry. Do you want to sit down for a second? Get something to drink? Do you know if a bunch of her friends are getting together or anything? I mean, that's how I found out that she was missing. We. A bunch of her friends came over yesterday night around midnight and they they couldn't they hadn't seen her since Saturday so they were trying to find out where she was I they they went in they had a key to her apartment and they checked around didn't see anything out of place I mean, it was locked when everyone got there that was yeah around midnight and then we we went over to law school to see if maybe she was over in the library studying or something. And we looked up in the study rooms on the third floor and there was no one there. And we came back, we looked around and just trying to find any anything to figure out where she was. She doesn't have any family in Georgia? I, I don't know. I, as far as I know, every all of her family is from in Maryland. Have you met her family? I, there, there was one time that I met them. They came down first year. She she had a little dog, a little brown dog, that she would uh, exercise out in front of the law school, and it got hit as she was coming across the road. I, I heard the car hit it and ran out, and she was there crying. And we thankfully there was someone who came along who knew a vet or something, and they helped that and the her family came down uh, I think a, a couple weeks after that or something and I met them just briefly but I we we've been trying to figure out she has a boyfriend up in Atlanta but I mean someone called her called him and he hadn't heard from her nope no one could figure out where she was Yeah, she went over to a couple friends' house, Garen Mueller and Joe Karens. They live over on Walnut, and I mean, they they said that she was over there in the morning, and then that was the last time that anyone we've been able to find out from had seen her. She hadn't mentioned what she was going to do that day or anything? Uh, we, uh, Joe, he got onto her computer last night to see if she had said anything. She'd sent an email out to some people that afternoon talking about like going out to eat or something. And the last thing that anyone, there was an email that she sent out after 10 that night where she, she sent to, I think it was someone in Atlanta, a friend of hers in Atlanta. And he, she said that she she was afraid in her apartment that she thought someone had tried to break in on Thursday night and she she was afraid to stay in there but where did you hear where did you hear that from from Joe no he he pulled it up and we we read it off the screen she had said that to a friend in Atlanta yeah I, I can't remember his name but and you hadn't heard anything on Thursday night no she no. never came to you to tell you anything no I'm 
I, if she had, I could have done something. I, I could have lent her a handgun. I've, I've got a little handgun that I have for defense. And yeah, I mean something. Yeah, I mean, if she was afraid in her apartment, then I mean, get her out of there. That that's what she said in the email. She thought that someone had tried to break into her apartment. She said, like, Macon hoodlums tried to break into my apartment on Thursday night. Is that her car parked there? The Chevy? No. Car? No. Um, the, I think that that's the detective's car, Detective oh, her Patterson. Car's not even there? No, it, it was here earlier, and they they towed it. I mean, it had been there for days, and then they towed it to I guess look through, see if there was. Yeah. Find out that something was wrong with the police here. Was it like when you walked up a little while ago? Or? No, I mean, we, the police were called last night and they came and they looked around and they didn't see anything. I mean, they went in, we looked around the place, no sign of a struggle, no sign that anyone had broken in, just nothing. Just she was gone. I mean, all of her stuff was there, her ID was there, her wallet was there. But she was she, she was just gone. Did you just come home and see the police here? No, I, I was that here this morning. I, mean, I I couldn't hardly sleep. I, I mean, I I was up until I mean, early hours, and then I just I got home and I just collapsed. And then this morning they knocked on my door. They were looking around trying to find anything, and a few a few of the other friends. Uh, Burpee, um, Burpee and Garen and Ashley, they were here. They were here last night, and they'd come back this morning. I just went out and talked with them, and they, and then they moved us all over to the side, and they bust us all down to the department and kept us there until I got back just a little while ago. And, mm, yeah, they, they took statements trying to find out if anyone had seen anything, if anyone had heard anything, when the last time anyone saw it was. Now, they haven't confirmed, at least not with us, that it, it was um, or that they found. Are you holding out any hope right now? I, mean, I, I hope, but if, if they found it on, on the property somewhere, No, no. As far as any of us knew, they they were still trying to just find her. I mean, we got an email this morning from some people that live on the other side of Kroger, on the other side of the river, that they had seen her in the past running in that area. We thought maybe someone had snatched her over there, or maybe she got hurt or something. Okay, so he seems a bit distressed, doesn't he? Seems a bit freaked out once he finds out a body has been found, or a torso has been found, in a wheelie bin near, right near his apartment, where he lives next door to Lauren. Now, just a side note to this, one of his, his mates, that Thad guy, would say how he acted out this interview, exactly how he had acted in a student play they'd been involved with years before and how McDaniel had told him he only did the play because he thought one day he might need to act out being emotional or distressed or something in real life. Thad said he he just wasn't this sort of person when they were 
interviewing him to start with. Oh, my God. This just gets greasier. Now, when McDaniel returned to his apartment, apparently shaken by this news, Patterson asked him to sign a form giving police consent to search his apartment. Now, McDaniel didn't respond and didn't sign the consent form. In fact, he was placed in the Macon Police Department Mobile Command Centre. Now, this was a large truck which, which was now parked at the apartment complex. McDaniel remained there for several hours while various law enforcement officers came and went. Now, McDaniel was never outside police presence again that day. And at all times, there was somebody positioned between McDaniel and the door of the enclosed panel truck. I think already at this stage, they're thinking he's dodgy. Then a dog handler, Tracy Sargent, and her two dogs, they were on the premises searching various places as they will. The dogs picked up scents not only in Lauren's apartment, but also in and around McDaniel's place and also at apartment one. Now, apartment one was underneath Lauren's place. So it was one on the bottom, two was hers above. You go across, that's four where McDaniel is and under him is number two. Now, McDaniel was still in this mobile command centre and he was still under the watchful eye of law enforcement. At around 10.45pm, this is a lot later, McDaniel was still in this mobile command centre. Apparently he drank about 10 bottles of water. Now, Patterson put McDaniel into his police car and took him back to the detective bureau for Patterson's fourth interview of him. Now, this began at about 11pm on June the 30th, 2011. Okay, now, this is the creepy, strange interview that you can watch on my YouTube channel. Just search for True Crime Island. This interview is just surreal. Whereas previously, McDaniel was animated, willing to talk, not only to police, but also to the media. He was now sitting in a chair in the interview room, motionless, with his hands by his side. Now, Patterson interviewed McDaniel for some time. Then he left the interview room to meet Lauren's father, Mr. Giddings, who just arrived from Maryland. Sergeant Chapman took over the interview of McDaniel. Now, they would swap in and out, sometimes they're both in there at the same time, over the next couple of hours. Now, this interview, like I said, is more surreal. It's more crazier than Rocky Rambo's interview. And if you don't know that case, I covered it a few months back, or you can watch that extremely frustrating interview on YouTube as well. The Rocky Rambo one, though, is nine hours, and I still get frustrated thinking about it, him eating that chicken sandwich. Anyway, they all they seem to get out of him is yes, no, I don't know, all, all in this monotone low voice. In fact, with his troll hair and the low resolution of the video camera, he looks like the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. Now, thank God this video is only a couple of hours worth. Now, I'm just going to play a, a little bit here of this two-hour interview, just so you can, anyone who doesn't go and watch the interview can get an idea of this monotone voice. Now, if you do want to skip through some of it, come back at around the 39-minute mark of the podcast. Right, so here we go. All right, brother. All right. I just got to ask you a few more questions. Okay. Uh, you came down earlier tonight. Me and you talked. All right. You don't have any weapons on you, do you? No. That's just you are. What's wrong? You know I'm Detective Patterson, right? Yes. Do you remember? Put your hands up here. You remember us talking? Yeah. 
Yes. Earlier tonight, right? Yes. You remember me earlier in the day? Yes. When we came down here and talked a little bit and then we left? Yes. Okay. I need to know about this girl right here. You know her? Yes. Who is that? Lauren Giddings. Does she live next door to you? Yes. When's the last time you seen her? Two or three weeks ago. Okay. Was you friends with Lauren? Yes. Look at me when you talk to me, son. Okay? Was you friends with her? Yes. Close friends? We were good I friends. I mean, y'all were friends, right? Both yes. of y'all were law students. You're studying to be an attorney, right? Yes. What kind of law do you want to go into? Criminal law? Yes. Civil? Is that what you want to do for a living? Yes. Okay. Are you almost finished? Yes. Okay. So you don't have too much more to do, right? No. All right. Are you going to stay here in Macon? I don't know. Did you used to work at the district attorney's office in Macon? Yes. Was you on the prosecutor side or the defense side? Prosecutor. So you were on our side? Yes. <laughs> right. You never worked on the other side? No. Did you like it when you were down there? Yes. Uh, got along with everybody? Yes. Okay. And you've lived next to Lauren for a long time? Yes. Okay. Do you know where she's at tonight? No. Hmm? No. Have you ever seen her with that dress on? No. You have no idea where she's at? No. Uh, I mean, you watch TV shows, right? Like yes. detective shows. What's your observation? How do you think somebody would take her? If somebody did take her? When she was running. Does she normally run all the time? She runs, I don't know how often. You mean you think somebody might have took her when she was running like down the street somewhere? Yes. You don't think somebody got her when she got back to her apartment? I don't know. Well, you know there was a body found in the trash can next to the apartments. Yes. You do know that. And it's a female, white female's body. Right there. Right next to y'all's apartment. Feet within from her apartment. I mean, earlier today, me and you sit here and talk normal. What's going on with you now? Why are you acting like this? I need to know. Why all of a sudden you're acting like this? Hmm? I don't understand. Okay. Earlier today, we sat here and talked, but now you're acting like you don't know what's going on. Hmm? I mean, did something happen or something to you? I mean, why are you not, why are you shutting down? Why are you not talking to me? I don't know. You don't know? Are you scared? No. And you know why we've been working all day trying to find Lauren, right? Yes. Because her family wants to know where she's at. Yes. And I don't know what to tell her family. So I'm asking you, what do I need to tell her family? I don't know. <laughs> what do you want me to tell them? I don't know. Huh? You're going to have to tell me what to tell her family. It's all on you, brother. What do you want me to tell her family? Huh?
need to know. I need to know. Okay? If something happened to Lauren and you know, you need to tell me. If you know something. Because I need to know. Because her family's down here want to know what happened to her. I don't know. You don't know? No. That's what you want me to tell her mother and her father. That you don't know. Not that you're sorry that she's missing. Not that you've been trying to help me all day find her, but you just wanted me to tell her I don't know. I don't know. Are you a sorry piece of shit that you want me to tell her that? You got your ass on that fucking news and stood out there and gave a media report that her mother saw about her missing daughter. And you want me to sit there and tell them that you don't know. Is that what you want me to tell them? Because you're all over the news. You sure stood out there and ran your mouth to the news media. But now you're going to get out here and you don't fucking know. You know. You're just a sorry piece of shit that don't give a fuck. Right? Yeah. Well, why'd you tell the media everything? Do you need to see what you told the media today? Yes. It was on the 11 o'clock news. Well, I'm asking you. Tell me. I want to know. I don't know where she is. That ain't what you told the media. You didn't stand in front of that camera and say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You gotta be killing me, Steven. As you, Steven. So, Steven, listen to me. We're real people, and we're here to talk to you. We're trying. We're. I like to think that we're friends. Okay, friends communicate back and forth. The only thing you said is yes or no, and I don't know. Okay, it makes me feel like you're treating me like you don't like me, and I feel like I've looked out for you today. Everything you said you wanted, I've, I've given you. I've tried to give you food several times. You know, I feel like we talked. You told me about how you like to look at porn on the internet. Um, you expressed to me that you're a virgin, correct? Yes. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you tell friends. You know what I'm saying? Right? Yes. Steven, we're telling way too many lies. <laughs> so I mean, you're telling me they're lying. You're willing to tell me... That you're a virgin, and that you you told me you jack off the porn on the internet, but you don't want to admit to having another call. That makes me think you got something to hide, Stephen. That concerns me. You tell me things that most people wouldn't tell somebody else, but yet you lie about something simple. Why are you about trying to hide that you have another car? What's the big deal? I don't have. I got three cars. Do you? So in the two hours, that's about all they get out of him. Yes. No. I don't know. I don't understand. All in that monotone voice, and he just sits there absolutely motionless. So there's no body language at all, and maybe that was his plan. In fact, they'd go out of the interview room sometimes for maybe five or ten minutes or so, and if you have a look from the frame 
on the video where they leave from the frame they get back, he hardly moves his body at all. There's no face touching. There's absolutely nothing. He's just sitting there like a zombie. Anyway, at around 1 a.m. July the 1st, so this is overnight, now it's into 1 a.m., Patterson walked McDaniel into his office, called McDaniel's mother, Glenda McDaniel, and allowed him to talk to her for a few minutes. Lieutenant Carl Fletcher then walked into Patterson's office and he began to ask McDaniel questions. Another search warrant for McDaniel's apartment as well as search warrants for his car and his body to include DNA collection, hair samples, fingerprints, fingernails and a full bo- and full body photographs, that was granted. During the next part of the interview, Fletcher had gotten a confession from McDaniel that he'd entered two different apartments at Barristers Hall between December 26, 2008 and January 31, 2009. And he'd taken a condom from each of those apartments. This is crazy. Now, the condom stealing, it confused the cops a little bit because he'd earlier told police he was a virgin and saving himself for marriage. Now, when officers asked why he had condoms in his room if he was saving himself for marriage, he replied that he'd stolen two of them from his sister and also from other apartments in this complex. Not exactly someone who had just graduated to be a lawyer. He just wouldn't think he'd open his mouth and admit to something like this. So now it was 5am on July the 1st. At this point, after having never been out of police observation for or custody for nearly 20 hours and having been questioned off and on by various police officers and others most of that time, including continuous interrogation at the Detective Bureau for the previous six hours, Lieutenant Fletcher read McDaniel his Miranda warnings. He then arrested him for burglary the burglary of the condoms. Sergeant Gatlin arrived at the detective bureau from his search of McDaniel's apartment, at which time he photographed McDaniel's body and took DNA, hair and fingernail clippings. Okay, I think we need to move this along a little bit. McDaniel is held on the condom burglary charges and over the next few weeks, several searches are made of McDaniel's apartment. Now, this is something a little bit weird. They do multiple searches of his apartment. Each time they go back, they seem to find something new, which seems a little bit crazy, but apparently they they do. The, the other thing is they're not going to actually charge him for ages over this, but they're holding him on the condom burglary charges. Now, in his kitchen, he has cupboards full of tinned food with all the labels lined up sleeping with the enemy style. Now, a luminol examination on Lauren's bathroom will reveal a shocking scene. There's blood all over the walls, the floor, and in the bath. Now, when they open up the drain from the bathroom, they will find Lauren's fingers. They'll find several firearms, knives, and ammo in McDaniel's room. They also find multiple computers, multiple hard drives, multiple USB keys, you know, the USB drives. They'll also find a foam cup with the name Lauren on it. And if you think that's creepy, they also find a pair of Lauren's undies, green with white dots, and apparently they were stained with blood. They also found a USB key that belonged to Lauren that was filled with her photos. They also found a key to Lauren's door, plus a master key that opened every apartment and utility room on the Barristers Hall property. 
they will do a forensic examination on all the computer gear. Now, if this isn't a case of deleting your browser history, I don't know what is. You see, McDaniel liked to watch violent rape porn at the same time that he's searching Lauren's social media sites. Not only will they find violent rape porn history on his computer, they'll find kitty prawn on his storage drives as well. Even more creepy will be the discovery of a digital camera taped to the end of a long pole, long enough for McDaniel to hold up and be able to look into Lauren's rooms. Now, video footage taken on the night she disappeared, video of the camera from from the camera on the pole looking into her window would also be found during the forensic examination of McDaniel's drives. It would also be found that Lauren got a call from one of the other residents in the complex that it looked like, well, someone was trying to warn her that it looked like someone was trying to look into her windows. I wonder who that was. Now, Lauren also confided in a few friends that she felt her place had been broken into, but she just couldn't put a finger on how she felt or what it was. Of course, we know what it was now. Investigators, they'd find a hacksaw in the utility room with Lauren's blood or DNA on it, and the cardboard wrapper that the hacksaw came in was found under McDaniel's kitchen sink. Now, blue fibres found on the shorts that Lauren's torso was wearing were also found on a grey shirt of McDaniel's, and several rings would also be found. Sadly, one thing they wouldn't find would be the rest of Lauren's body, her head, her legs and her arms. It would be found that although Lauren's torso was found in the wheelie bins at the apartment complex, her other body parts had been disposed of in the dumpsters over the road at the Mercer Law School and had already been taken away by the waste disposal truck, never to be found. Now, a little side note. At Barristers Hall, because the police were there in the morning and they had their trucks and all this in the way, the next garbage truck that was coming, which would have picked up the wheelie bin with her torso in it, that was delayed. That couldn't come in and actually take it away, but it was due to be taken away that day. So you never know if that wheelie bin had been taken away, where this case would be now. Anyway, McDaniel would ultimately be charged with the murder of Lauren Giddings, and he would plead not guilty right up to a couple of weeks before the trial when he would accept a plea deal and change his plea to guilty. Part of this plea was that the kitty prawn charges were dropped along with the burglary charges. But he did have to confess and give details of what happened to Lauren. So this is apparently what happened. At 4.30am on June the 26, 2011, a masked McDaniel, so he's wearing a friggin' mask, he's used his master key to get into Lauren's apartment. Now she is sleeping at this stage. McDaniel then entered her bedroom and watched her sleep. Lauren then wakes up and she saw this masked intruder and she shouts out, get the fuck out. Now, McDaniel says, I leapt across the bed onto her and grabbed her around the throat. We tumbled out of bed onto the floor and she struggled to get away. She moved her legs and her lower body under her bed, preventing her from getting away or kicking me. Now, during their struggle, Lauren managed to rip the mask off from McDaniel's face and she ended up pleading with him, Stephen, please stop. Then McDaniel clenched his hands around her throat for about 15 minutes, he reckons, until she stopped moving and then he dragged her into the bathroom and placed her in the bathtub. 
He then returned to his apartment next door to Lawrence and spent the entire day on his computer. He returned to the apartment later that night and dismembered her corpse with a hacksaw, flushing each of her fingers down the toilet. He says, I removed her limbs and head, wrapped them in several black trash bags separately and discarded them in the Mercer Law School dumpster. So McDaniel then put Lawrence's torso into the apartment trash can on June the 28th. Now that's two days after killing her and two days before she was found. He says, she was wearing the pink running shorts when she died and I never removed them. They were found on her torso just as I'd left them, he said. So Lauren's father, Billy Giddings, said that he believes only one third of McDaniel's account. He says he's had a long time to put it together. That's about as good as he could get it. And that's pretty horrible. And yeah, you can pretty much think that McDaniel at this stage has had nearly two years to put this story together. It is pretty horrible. It's pretty pathetic. And I'm sure he's left out some of the gory bits. I mean, honestly, where did he put that head? Where did he put the limbs? Did he put it in the dumpster across the road or not? Who knows? Now, McDaniel would be sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of at least 30 years. And the Giddings family, they did tell the court that they didn't want the death penalty. So, Islanders... What do you think? Another senseless murder, a murder of a young, up-and-coming, friendly, popular, outgoing, intelligent, productive member of society. Lauren had done all that hard work, studying for a future. She was almost there and she just had to sit her bar exam and some pathetic piece of human garbage, Stephen McDaniel, just deleted her like some file on a computer. Well, I think he tried to delete her make her disappear, but for some reason he wasn't able to fully do it. My thoughts, well, I think for the three years they lived next to each other and I think they both moved in around the same time and they both graduated at the same course at the same time. I reckon McDaniel got a crush on her. Very early on he made some sort of advance to her. She knocked him back, but he wasn't able to move on. Now, from what I've read, Lauren treated everyone with respect. She she wouldn't have belittled him. She wouldn't have rejected McDaniel in, in any way other than the kindest way she could have. She was already in a relationship anyway the whole time she lived there. So what more was she to do? Now, I think in the three years, McDaniel, he just studied her every move. He was accomplished at picking locks and I'm sure he was able to access her apartment well before he was able to get a copy of her key or a copy of that master key which he could get into the entire complex. I'm sure he was was aware also of her spare key she kept on the front balcony. Um, maybe that's where he got a copy of the key from. I'm sure he could have either been able to recreate also the master key or he could have just borrowed it from the maintenance guy and someday copied it. Now, he was generally home when he wasn't at lectures. His his friends would even say that he had cobwebs on the wheels of his car. So he probably knew the coming and goings of almost everyone in the apartment complex. And as time went on, McDaniel became more and more obsessed with Lauren. And having her next door was almost as good as having her as a girlfriend. He entered her apartment. He stole a USB key full of photos. I'm sure he went through her laundry and her dresser's drawers. And you know why. I'm pretty sure he would also go through a computer while she was while he was in her place. He was in her life as much as he could be, and this gave him some sort of pleasure. 
and it's really creepy stuff. On the outside, he just looked like a bum student who let his frizzy hair grow unchecked, just like his facial hair. Now, those that knew him thought he was odd. Some he would talk about on how he would commit the perfect murder. Now, as he approached the time when he would have to sit for the bar exam, he knew he was in for a big life change. He was just an average student and probably may not have even passed this bar exam. He might have thought it was going to bring shame as he would have to tell his parents about this failure. Lauren also, she was going to move out. In fact, she was going to move out just days before he murdered her. And I'm sure he knew exactly when she was going to move. Now, could he just not accept all this? Having to get a job, losing Lauren as a neighbour and probably never see, see her again? He was so obsessed with her that he decided that he would permanently join his name and hers together by killing her. Is that why he threw a torso in the wheelie bin next to the apartments rather than dispose of it the same way as the rest of her body? The rest of her body, they've tried finding all the landfills where it should be and those body parts aren't there. So where did he really put them? Now, did McDaniel want to get caught? Was this life change he was about to undergo that unbearable that he would rather spend his life in prison than go and have to get a job? He had plenty of time after killing Lauren to dispose of evidence. I mean, maybe he thought she would be discovered straight away and this paralysed him with fear. Now, I actually think he stored her body parts in the fridge of the empty apartment downstairs at first and bit by bit he took the bags out and disposed of them. Now, when he was left with this last piece of a torso, which was the largest piece, maybe he wasn't sure how to move it, so he ended up just putting it in the wheelie bin. But why didn't he get rid of her panties? The extra keys he had in his apartment, her USB key full of all her photos. Did he just get lazy? Did he try to delete the movie? Well, he did try to delete the movies he took with that camera on the pole the night that he, he took those pictures the night he killed her. So he did try to destroy some evidence. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I reckon this loser scumbag, if he put in a bit more effort, he may have gotten away with Lauren's murder. And I'm sure he would have progressed to serial killer status and ruined many more lives. He did try to appeal his sentence a couple of years back. Now, remember, there was no trial as he pled guilty, but thank God that that appeal failed. You don't want a sicko motherfucker like this out on the streets, ever. So, Islanders, what a creepy, creepy, creepy case. And, yeah, just go to my YouTube channel and have a look at his police interview. Have a look at the interview the TV station did out the front of his house before he was arrested. It is. It just gives you more of an insight into what's going on here. Okay, now I'd like to thank all my past and present patrons for the support of the show. It really does help me out with all the bills being commercial free and all. Thanks to RU, RU or Rue for helping out. It's really appreciated. If you, if anyone wants to just give me a dollar a month, go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and join the gang. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Thanks to Charles Thorne who shouted me a beer. Thanks, Charles. Go to my website, True Crime Island, where you can truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use any of these iTunes or pod players. I have links to merch, social media, and all that sort of stuff. 
If you want to get in contact with me, just email me if you want to do that. That's cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Bumbagalunga. Bumbagalunga.